lot of people say that Jesus is this radical guy. But I wanted to take a look, a new look about, is, does evidence really back that up? What the Bible has to say really back that up? Or, does Jesus resemble the caricatures we see at Christian bookstores, in some cases, or occasionally on lame cable programming, right? Is this Jesus? Or is there a radical Jesus? Jesus who totally bends and explodes all our expectations. Well, the Jesus in Luke 15 through 18, Jesus' ministry in Luke 15 through 18, conveys a side of Jesus that we may have previously overlooked when examining his life and teaching. Uh, I love this section of scripture. I'm excited about it. Um, so we're calling this series, uh, we're going to look at the next few weeks, months, the overlooked Jesus, the usually rare, often overlooked, and regularly surprising teachings of Jesus Christ. Luke 15 through 18. Let's kind of step back as a church and focus on Jesus for a little bit. Usually rare, because the life and teachings of Jesus are contained in four gospel accounts. Four. Three of these accounts are very similar. Uh, and the authors seem to have shared a lot of material. These are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, the first three books in the New Testament. And uh, together, they're often called the synoptic gospels. Uh, that coming from uh, sin, meaning together, S-Y-N, sin, meaning together, and Optic, which means, anyone know? See. That's right. View together. They were seen together. Seen together, likely comparing notes about what Jesus had done in his ministry. They got together, compared notes, starting with the Gospel of Mark. Almost every teaching and story, though, that is unique to the Gospel of Luke, that's only in Luke, comes in this chunk of Scripture. Luke 15 through 18. So, I'm excited about that, and about 75% of this chunk of scripture is only found in the Gospel of Luke. So what, we, what we're going to read is almost totally unique to all the Gospels. Um, it's often overlooked, because for whatever reason, I've rarely heard a lot of preachers, teachers, uh, preach or teach through some of these uh, teachings of Jesus, through some of these stories. For whatever reason, I don't know exactly why that is. I may have fell asleep during some of these sermons, you know, where this is going on and some preacher preached about it. That's rare because I'm not a napper. And so maybe one, but two or three, that's, I don't think so. I think it's regularly surprising as well. Usually rare, often overlooked, regularly surprising. Because, man, there's some prizes from Jesus in here. There's some serious surprises. We're surprised by Jesus who employs words like hate in conjunction with your family. Jesus gives a seminar on Jewish parenting that makes the dad look like a naive fool. Uh, he praises certain actions of a shady businessman. Jesus rushes you into making decisions. He smacks away applause for good deeds, but gives applause for rebellion. And that's just a sampling of what we're going to be looking at during this time together. So I encourage you, whether you, uh, you feel like you, you know Jesus... You know, you've known him for a while, or you really don't know Jesus or much about him. Allow yourself to be challenged by the words of Jesus during this time. The, the Jesus who took people's thoughts and ideas about God and turned them upside down. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, begin today in Luke 14, which I'm cheating a little bit. I said Luke 15 through 18. But 
Lord, as we've been today in Luke 14, I pray that you would challenge our hearts and minds. Lord, that we wouldn't just let our preconceived notions of Jesus uh, dominate our thoughts and our hearts. Lord, how can we go wrong when we have your word? Help us be open to it. Whether we've been a Christian for 10 days, 10 years, or 40 years. Challenge us by your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, Rod here at Command of Bay today. Going to do some filming for our new series, The Overlook Jesus. Ask us some questions about perceptions and perceptions people have about Jesus. So we're going to see what happens here out of Command of Bay. Do you think um, Jesus asked people to take a leap of faith and following him or believing in him? Yes, I think you do. You do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. So, that's, <laughs> you want to, uh, no, that's fine. Do you want to elaborate at all? Uh, you think? Um, no. Okay, that's good. Do I think that Jesus asked you to take a leap of faith? Um, well, I guess because you're kind of believing something that you haven't seen, meaning that we know that you came, we've um, read it, I do think it's a leap of faith that you're taking to believe that, you know, Jesus exists. Yeah. Um, but I think that you feel the presence everywhere. I think it's something that you can feel and you know that it is actually, he's here. Yeah. Um, from just things that happen. So it is a leap of faith. Okay. Yeah. But the question is, do you think Jesus asked people to take a leap of faith to believe in him or follow him? Uh, probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, I'd say yes. You think it's one of those sort of, you know, you can't be sure, you just gotta go for it. Once you take the leap of faith, then you become very sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. For more information, you can visit our website at www.sunriseky.com. Click on Sermon Archive. Or just come visit us. So every week we will be going out. <laughs> oh, good times. All right. Uh, thank you. Your pastor is kind of a dork. But look, every week we're going to be going out and asking people these hard-hitting questions and just kind of getting their thoughts on who Jesus is and these kind of notions, I think popular notions of what Jesus teaches or what he says. And uh, like this first one, you know, you think God wants people to take a leap of faith. Um, you know, perhaps... This question can be encapsulated by two images. All right. One uh, is from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. One of my favorite movies of all time was when Harrison Ford and Sean Connery team up in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I love it. They're looking for the Holy Grail. Indiana Jones' dad is dying. His dad's played by Sean Connery, and he's saying, hurry, Junior, that sort of stuff. And he has to go through a series of tests, one of which is he has to step over 
is to step over a cliff, basically, to get to the other side. So he's got to kind of do one of these. I'm going to hurt myself. And he literally calls it, it's a leap of faith. And I remember in high school being invited to this Bible study and uh, where we watched this uh, on VHS tape, no doubt. And the leader quickly made the point, you know, to know God, you must take, you got to take a leap of faith in Jesus. And that night might be tonight. And it was interesting to me. I said, wow, you haven't even told me about Jesus. I'm going to take the leap of faith. The other image is this. And I'm going to put it up there for now and talk more about it here in a moment. You put that, that image up. There you go. I'm going to come back to this image momentarily. It has to do with a leap of faith. Um, here in Luke 14, Jesus challenges this notion of this leap of faith. Uh, the notion of being quick and to jump into the, you know, uh, I got saved pool. Right? Got saved. If you open your Bibles to Luke 14, we're going to look there this morning. Luke 14, 25 through 35. where Jesus says this, Luke 14, 25 through 35. He says, Now great crowds accompanying Jesus. And he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not, uh, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other's yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We're going to read verse 34 and 35 as well. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, we don't have time to get to verses 34 and 35 today. I'm going to put that disclaimer out there. If you want to, I will be posting it on my blog this afternoon. As soon as I get home, uh, it's all ready to go. I just got to put it on there. And the blog will be entitled, How Can My Life Be Worse Than Dung? Um, so you can enjoy that. And I will probably never have another blog title with dung in it. So um, let's hope. Cross your fingers. Um, but if you're curious, you can look at that and how it relates um, later. I want to give you the setting for this. Uh, the setting for this story, this teaching, and kind of how we move on from here is that Jesus is at the height of his ministry. And this is it. As he heads towards Jerusalem, he's heading towards Jerusalem at this point, and maybe you know what happens in Jerusalem. It's going to be bad for Jesus, but ultimately it'll be good for us. He's at the height of his ministry. If you judge height 
as many do by the number of people, right? You have following you on your tour, right? And he's heading towards uh, the biggest stop on his uh, Jesupalooza tour, right? Uh, you know, this is, it's big time. He's heading towards Jerusalem. This is the capital. It's where like thousands and thousands of people will congregate to see Jesus and to stardom. T-shirts being printed at this point, right? I don't know what they look like. Uh, tickets are going on, on uh, eBay slash EK Trade for, you know, like 50 drachmas. That's like 50 days wages for a person back then. That's a lot of money. You know, U2, Madonna, they're like, they're like trying to get in to open for Jesus, which would really be ironic. What do you think? Because Madonna would be probably meeting the real Madonna on tour, Jesus' mom. That would be kind of awkward, I think. Like, why did you, why'd you take my name? Um, we would never need that Broadway musical either, right? We, we, would, uh, we would never need that, that superstar Broadway musical, you know, Jesus Christ, superstar. Da, 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 da. We wouldn't need it because Jesus was going on tour and heading towards the capital of the known world, Jerusalem. So, This is a great point to expand his ministry. This is a big moment, right? All these people are following Jesus. The commentators I read said this is probably the height of his ministry. More people are following him than ever. So he's going to get, he's going to rope them in, right? Here we go. I'm going to do some, you know, I'm going to be charming. I'm going to tell you a good story. I'm Jesus. Let's get to know you. Instead, he, he shares a sermon. A sermon of church shrinking proportions, right? Instead, he says, Let's stop here for a minute. Let me show you how hard it is to follow me. And then I'll watch you run. And many would. Casual attendance, it's not enough. Making time for me? You making time for me? Oh, thank you. No, that won't do. I need your trust. And I need all of it. And Jesus is basically saying here, let's put your trust to the test. <clears throat> Try this on for size. Three conditions in following me. Verse 26. Let's just read over them real quick, just for refreshing. Listen to these three conditions Jesus lays out at the height of his ministry. If anyone comes to me and does not hate... It's not a mistranslation, by the way. Does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross crossed by the most humiliating form of capital punishment, most humiliating way to die for the 200 years surrounding Christ's uh, ministry. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then in verse 33, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, we're going to take some time to unpack these verses in a moment. But for now, it's enough that we know that Jesus wasn't inviting some people to some, you know, ice cream social, right? Or some, uh, some Zumba da- dance class. You know, this is not uh, typical, we think, of even in church. Right? You know, you're welcome, you know. We do have all these different things going on for you. It's all for you. No. Jesus says, it's for me. And you need to count the cost. The question that must be carefully weighed comes in between these conditions. So we got the conditions in verse 26, 27, again in 33, in the, in the middle, in the nuggety center of the passage, Jesus doesn't ask people to take a spontaneous blind leap of faith, although believe me, it'll take great faith. Rather, he tells people to step back and answer him this, am I worth 
how much it's going to cost to follow me? Am I worth how much it's going to cost to follow me? So in a nutshell, the key question I think that Jesus is trying to get across in this passage is, am I worth the cost? Because there is a cost. Am I worth the cost? Now, our intellect, maybe intellectually, we're going to say, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Jesus is a great guy. Many of us think he is Lord. He might be worth it. Some of us might be questioning us. Some of us will answer right away, yeah, he's worth it. You know? How can we begin to even judge Jesus' worth? It's kind of a scandalous question. Right? And Jesus, you know, like in those MasterCard commercials, right? He's always priceless. You can't put a, a price tag on Jesus. You know, it's the, you know, maybe you, you make a salary of $4,000, $4, right? Food's $1,000, right? You pay per month. Entertainment, under $100 a month. You're supposed to give 10% to your church. Then your spouse gets all the rest, right? <laughs> That's how it goes. Um, Jesus. It's priceless. You can't put a price tag on that. He's worth more than my relationships or possessions. And I agree. But is he at least worth that much? Is he at least worth that much? And do we show that by the way we live? Again, Jesus asks you to carefully weigh, am I worth the cost of following me? Believe in me? We're going to try to answer that question this morning and look at it at least, or give you some tools for answering it for yourself, I really should say. To answer this question, you've got to do two important things. The first is, I think, carefully itemize the costs. You can't overlook it, right? Any good builder or architect, contractor knows this. Accountants know this. You've got to look at the cost. What's it going to cost me? That's the bottom line. Uh, and Jesus says that in verses 28 through 30, right? which you desire to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and figure out the cost. Otherwise, what's going to happen? People are going to mock him. Nonetheless, he's going to lose all this money. Have you guys seen this property? Put it up here. You recognize this? I know our, our LCD projector is a little bit washed out. But have you guys seen, recognize this property at all? This is... Uh, We've driven by it a couple times on the way out to the Botanical Gardens on the east end of the island. Um, I thought, actually, when I looked at it originally, I wish the picture was a little better, but it was like a Kamana Bay replica. I was like, whoa, this looks really nice. Maybe it was like built by Dart's arch enemy on the other side of the island. I was thinking, like, maybe, you know, like, Dart, doesn't Dart, he's like the original maker of the Styrofoam cup. Maybe, like, this guy's like the maker of Dixie cups. You know, like those paper cups. Mr. Dixie. He's made his own Kamenebe. But again, my, my mind's a little weird. But uh, I was wrong, turns out. It was not built by a uh, surprise uh, by Dart's Arch Enemy. It was way off. It was a high school. Uh, it was a high school out there, uh, Clifton Hunter High School. Or, but now it's a potential, of course, for a little while now, it's been a potential looting area slash possible playground for my children. Katie here? Once again, Katie's gone. I can say things like that. Um, probably it's not a bad idea. But while we viewed it, we viewed it once, then we viewed it again another month later. And it looked pretty much the exact same both times. And when I asked someone about this, I asked them, you know, how much progress has been made at this site? They answered me, well, before or after January 2009. I was like, oh, okay. That's, that gives me a good answer. So not much lately. 
I understand. Well, you guys probably know more about this than I do, but I found, soon, found out that soon after the recovery of Hurricane Ivan and when insurance monies were pouring in and um, along with monies for new developments started flowing, the government announced plans for three new high schools. And, you know, I'm new to the island. I don't know. Maybe this is a good idea, but, you know, this is my simple understanding. Three. I was like, what? what? Three? That's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot to plan and spend, start breaking ground on. One in Georgetown, one in West Bay, one on the East End. And then one on the East End here is this Clinton, Hunter, Clifton Hunter campus. So, you know, one site got axed in 2008 or shelved because they were due to budget constraints, the one up in West Bay. And the work started to slow down in 2009 on this one, on the East End. So eventually I was, I was finding out and reading that it came to a complete halt due to a contract dispute between the government and the uh, contractor. Now, there may have been little things here and things there and controversy, I don't know. But my guess is someone wasn't getting paid. You know? I, I'm no Matlock or Magnum PI. That's right. But I'm guessing someone wasn't getting paid. There wasn't enough money to go around. And now there's no, there's no target date for completion of this campus. Now, we talk all the time about these things happening, right? You get a question, I don't know, do they have enough money to really do this? Do they count the cost? Simple, right? And we talk all the time about this. We, you know, we talk about, can you believe they did this? And I talked about it with about four people this week who couldn't believe it. And we talk about bad business. We talk about, <clears throat> pardon me, foolish foresight. We talk about imprudent planning. Yet we live in a day, an age, where people don't often apply the same logic to their lives, the trajectory of their lives. <clears throat> we'll talk about it in business. We'll talk about it in building our own home. We'll talk about it with our kids when they go to school. But what about the trajectory of my life and God who created me? Some of you are considering basing or planning on basing, you've already started planning on basing, your entire life on one man. <clears throat> the God-man, Jesus Christ. As Jesus says in verse 31, you really need to sit down and deliberate the cost before following him. And this might sound hard. It is hard. Sitting down. Figuring out, what's it going to cost me? Because we need to understand what we're saying. We're saying, I want to trust my life to Jesus and become a Christian and follow him for the rest of my life. C.S. Lewis put it like this. I love the way C.S. Lewis says things. He always says things much better than I say them. Um, Our Lord is like the dentist. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of, of one particular sin which they are ashamed of, lust or physical cowardice or which is obviously spoiling their daily life, like bad temper. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. A lot of times we come to Jesus, like, man, you know, if I just had some forgiveness in my life, I could forgive others. If I just had some help with my spouse... That would be great. And I'll acknowledge you as Lord. But man, once you trust your life to him, it's on. Like Donkey Kong. I mean, it's on. All right? He's going to take it all. He's going to transform your life. If you're just in 
to Jesus for the forgiveness thing, if you're just into him for that, then you're not trusting your life to Christ. We're, we're playing religion. What we're doing. Like it's a board game. Now, are you prepared for this? Are you ready for that? Man, I wasn't. <laughs> I still feel like I, sometimes I'm not. I wasn't, though. I used to say that I became a Christian at a summer camp in North Carolina when I was 10 years old. I, uh, I prayed out loud to accept Christ like 20 plus times. It's like, Jesus, I accept you into my life. Thank you. And then the next day, Jesus, I accept you into my life. Thank you. I thought if I said it 20 times, it would actually happen. You know, I was like 10 years old. But I never trusted my life to him. There's a difference there. When you say, well, I accept you, Jesus. Well, yeah, I also accept people into my house. When you trust your life to a person, that's what the Bible says you got to do. That's hard. I didn't trust Jesus to forgive me. I certainly didn't trust him to be Lord of my life. I remember kind of getting away then from the Jesus thing a little bit. And I remember in fifth grade telling my first joke. And, and unfortunately, that joke went well. All right, it went well. And I say unfortunately because I liked it. I liked it, and so began a trend for me of, man, I like when people like and laugh at me. It's good times. You know, it's fun. Woo! And so, um, that was a whoop of joy. And so, it got me on this track of wanting to be liked by other people. And that became the desire of my life. When my dad transferred from the east side of the United States to uh, California on the west coast, Southern California, I thought it was the best thing in the world. This was the end of seventh grade for me. Because Southern California, as a seventh grade boy, man, we watched this show called, I'm just going to throw out there for some of you, Beverly Hills 90210. And it was, it was sweet, man. I was like, man, I'm going to have these, gir these girls. We're gonna, like, all these girls are going to go on dates together. They're going to use me. And I remember I'm a, I'm a heathen at this point. All right? It's going to be awesome. You know, I found out it wasn't really like that. And life is really like that. But I was living in the flesh. And my methods, when I got out to California, my methods of getting other people to like me turned ugly. Turned ugly because, um, well, in high school I, I had this goal to be with the funniest people. I had the funniest friends, funniest group of people. I met that goal, but the group I hung out with started drinking, um, uh, smoking the marijuana. And so in a desire to be liked, I began in a life of substance abuse, um, missing f classes in high school frequently. Uh, I had to make a lot of them up later just to get into college. And really, um, they were filled with a lot of deep hatred at this time. In my freshman and sophomore years, my grade 9 and 10, a lot of deep hatred of myself because I started to notice that my friends, we were all using each other. I don't know if you've had this experience before. This happens with adults too, not just adolescents. Where if one person was kind of funny, that was awesome. If someone wasn't funny and drawing attention for our group, they were kind of shunned. We didn't say anything, but they were kind of shunned. And I realized this. By the grace of God, I realized this. Certainly, what, you know, smoking dope wasn't helping me uh, with my brain. But by the grace of God, I realized this, and I realized, man, this stinks. And I've been living my life for this, for people to like me. I worked out a lot of factors, severe factors, so my parents could send me against my will, no doubt, to the same camp where I had kind of thought I became a Christian six years earlier. And I knew only two people there. Two people. Even though I'd spent many years there as a kid. And those people loved me. 
They love me with, without regard to my attitude or disposition. And I was curious, where, what is this love? Where's this love coming from? And I found out through one of the speakers, really, that this kind of love was made manifest only through Jesus Christ. It came through people only through Jesus. Because people loved me even though I wasn't giving anything nice. I was putting sarcasm and stuff like that on the table and meanness. They were showing me love. And they put that on the table. That can only happen through Jesus. And that he loved me more abundantly even than these people could love me. And I was pumped about that. I was, I was psyched. I was excited. And I trusted Jesus. It was awesome. And I want to praise the Lord for that. But, but I bring it up this morning because I didn't do very, one very important thing. When I was going to go back home to Southern California. And the thing I didn't do was step back and count the cost. What would it cost me when I returned home to Southern California? I didn't think about my old friendships or my current friendships and would they have to go on the chopping block because they were too tempting. Or, do, you know, I just continued on with those. I didn't think I needed fellowship, by which I mean intentional uh, relationships with others with Jesus as the center. We both know Jesus. We relate through Jesus. I didn't think I needed that. Even though in God's word, he tells us, he urges us to not give up consistently being a part of fellowship to make it a habit in our lives. It was a terrible time because I lost out. When I went home, I wasted basically an entire year of being a Christian. And yeah, I, I know, look, that God used it. I'm thankful for that. But I lost out a lot during that time. 365 days. I still regret in my life because Jesus still wasn't worth the cost. The importance of fellowship in a church body wasn't worth the cost because I never counted the cost. I never took the time to count it up in my life. So my question for you, what is the cost for you? What's the cost for you? I find a couple things with this when you're thinking about this question. One it's tremendously helpful to actually itemize and account for the cost, to say it out loud or get it on paper. Because it will rear its ugly head in secret. So if we just kind of think, oh yeah, be nice to people. Um, yeah, that's going to be hard. Okay? Say it to a friend who loves Jesus and keep you accountable. Say it to God. Get it on paper. Because it will rear its head it's ugly head in secret. You know, we, we sing a song sometimes here in church called In the secret, in the quiet place, in the stillness, you are there. Speaking of Jesus. Alright? Good song. But for me, oftentimes in the secret, in the quiet, quiet place, uh, the cost of following Jesus is there. When, I, when I'm alone, on my own, I'm thinking about that thing. That thing I'm going to have to give up or that I'm going to indulge in. The thing I've got to give up to follow Jesus or the thing that I really want to do. When you say it out loud to a friend, to God, and to, you put, get it on paper, you're itemizing it. You're, you're, you're putting it down for what it really is, and that's an idol in your life. Also, counting the cost, this applies to us whether you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for 10 days, 5 days or 5 months, 10 days or 10 years. Right? 
If you've been a Christian for 10 days, consider what it would be like to follow Jesus for the next 10 days. What's it going to cost you? If you've been a Christian for 10 years, what's it going to cost you to follow Jesus for the next 10 years of your life? So I thought about this in my life this last week. I thought about what it would cost to follow Jesus. And I found that I really can't trust myself and rely on myself to answer that question. Let me tell you why. One, you know, I'm a sinful person. I'm often blind to what I need. But I wrote down this list, and yeah, there were things on there like, you know, get to know God better, be a better husband, and these sorts of things. Good things. But then, then I decided I was going to challenge myself and open God's word and ask him to show me how I needed to count the cost. And God's word, which is described as a double-edged sword, it will divide so sharply, it divides between our bone and marrow, it says. Man, it will cut you open. It's a scalpel. And I, all, I, all I could do was rip up that first list. I said, man, this is, this, is, this is not really much of a cost compared to what this is at the end of the week. How do you start counting costs? Man, you read God's word every day. That's how you start counting your costs. And we see it here in Luke 14. We might often think of God's daily bread as encouragement. God also gives us this word to think about man. How is Jesus, what is Jesus asking me to give up for him today that I might treasure him as my greatest gain, that I might love him, that I might show him that I love him? Verse 26, look at verse 26. God's word reminds us of our greatest loyalty in relationships, right? Not appeasing those closest to us, but being faithful, being loyal to him and his word above all else. We know this, right? We know this because we live, we live in the world. It's called, you know, it's called planet Earth. We live here and we have this culture we live in that tells us, no, I want your loyalty. All right? Bend to me. Happens even in church culture. We say, we'll do everything to appeal to people. Culture you know so well, the friends you rely on, even your family who loves you will test your love and faithfulness to him. On occasion, I'm not saying your family's out to get you. What I'm saying is, even with the best intentions, everyone will at some point test you and your, your loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus. That could be a cost. Verse 27, God's word gives us a daily personal cross to bear. Uh, the word for cross here, or sorry, the word for bear, bastaze, uh, bastaze. Uh, it's a present tense going on here, which means it's an ongoing thing. Uh, same tense word for, for bear, cross, come and follow me. They're both present, meaning it's an ongoing process. It's a daily taking up of our cross. Not a one-time deal, but a daily taking up of our cross. An unpleasant circumstance or sickness, a person who's a thorn in your side, a change in attitude that you shouldn't have to show because you're in the right. And I've been there before, right? But God's word, like a scalpel, man, it shows us. Love, be patient, be kind. Whatever it is, God will show you that cost. Verse 33, God's word reinforces his request that we be willing to do anything. Right? Willing to do anything. And have you read this? If you've read this before, there's some pretty crazy things that God asks people to do. 
you know, like for instance, carry your son up to a mountain and be willing to sacrifice him just because I asked you to. It happens in the Bible. Right? The word in verse 33 for renounce. Renounce all we have is the, it's basically uh, apostaso. It's the cognate of apostate. All right, renounce all we have. This is a word that we often use negatively for people who are religious, who walk in the path, right? Then they go off the deep end. They go off the deep end. But Jesus turns this word around and says, are you willing to so part with culture and the world that you would go off the deep end for me? Would you count the cost to do that for me? Now, here gets the second thing we've got to consider, and this is brief. When we think about, am I worth the cost? That big question in a nutshell. Am I worth the cost? The second thing we've got to remember is this great truth. Counting the cost is not so much about the cost. It's about the treasure. And that's the joy of this whole sermon, hopefully. Yeah, those things are hard. What we have to give up, what we have to think about, at least be willing to give up for Jesus and following him. But man, it is worth the treasure. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 26. He's not saying to, you know, get on the hate the friends and family plan, but compared to how much you treasure and love Jesus and how much he loves you, anything less than complete love and loyalty to him, even the next level down, can only be described in human terms as hate. That's how much we're supposed to love and treasure Jesus. See, it's about the treasure, not about the cost. Verse 33, not so much that Jesus wants you to put your iPod, like gather up your iPod, your toiletries, your airline tickets to Europe, right, and your kids' easy-bake oven and put them on the corner, you know, for waste management to pick up. It's not so much about that. But if he's worth your greatest treasure, that won't be quite as hard. A willingness to do that. Also, it's not so much, as we see in verse 27, about the humiliation of dying to self daily through the cross. It's about the resurrection. What happens after death. And getting to live with God now and forever. It's about the treasure. And friends, we've seen this before. There's a moment in Jesus' ministry where likely hundreds of people leave him. Hundreds of people who are called disciples, no less. They start walking away in plain sight. What would you do? What would you do if you showed up this morning? Two cars in the parking lot. You peek in. Just a little, little look around the corner. Maybe there's seven, eight people here. Let's look at the Apostle Peter. Let's look at his response. John 6, 67-69. Jesus says this. Jesus said to the twelve apostles... Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The treasure was greater for Peter. And we've got to remember, the cost was great. Sometimes we look at verses like these and think, oh man, yeah, that was hard for them, but they got to follow Jesus. Imagine what it was like at that time. You got to know these people. You had dinner with them. You got to know their wives, their, their family, their kids. But because of something Jesus said, they walk away. They walk away. That's not easy. If we really think about it in our own lives. But Peter says, hey, 
Because you can hear how hard it is in his voice, right? Lord, yeah, it's hard, but whom, to whom shall we go? You, ultimately, you have the words of eternal life. The treasure for Peter, do you see that? Was greater than the cost. And with this, one of my best friends, um, my friend Aaron, spent the summer of 2001 helping to plant a church in Boston, Massachusetts, in the States. He fell in love with the community and the people there. <clears throat> Before graduating the next summer, Jesus called Aaron to the people of Boston. It was a simple call. Come and live among the poor and share with them the good news of Jesus. After graduating, um, Aaron flew to Boston. Listen to this, with only a car ride waiting for him at the airport. $40 and a mat to sleep on. That's it. So after sleeping outside for a couple nights, he found shelter at a beat-up home reserved solely for hardcore drug addicts with, with whom he shared a room. Since that time, Aaron met his wife there, started a church there, shared the gospel with hundreds there, served the poor there, miraculously, he would say, was accepted into Harvard, the Harvard School of Business there, because there is where Jesus called him to spend that season of his life. If you were to ask Aaron, why the heck would you go to Boston with $40 and a mat? I'm sure he'd tell you the same thing he told me back in 2002 when I asked him that question. He said, you know what? Jesus had to sit me down and I had to count the cost. And you know what, bro? Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we know that everything costs something. And we might think, well, does that include even the gift of salvation? And it does. But it was a price that we did not have to pay. It was a cost, Jesus, that you took on, that you paid on our behalf for our sin to give us a gift of salvation. But Lord, that gift of salvation, that gift of grace that you love us so much when we couldn't do, we were dead in our sins. We were literally dead in our sins. You made us alive together with Christ. We couldn't do anything. We were dead. Just the very idea of that means that we have to give up at least one thing. We have to pay the price of one thing when we follow Jesus, and that's our pride. So Lord, as we think about counting the cost... And we go this week, and I, I hope and pray we read your word, and we start jotting down, what is gonna, what's going to cost me to follow you, Jesus, the next year, five years, ten years, twenty years? And we do that. Lord, we also acknowledge that we can't do anything on our own. If we're going to count the cost, we need your help desperately. And so we ask it. Because we want to prize you. We want to treasure you. Because you are of the greatest worth of anything we've ever known. Clear the way for us to do that. Help us count the cost. We ask this in your name. Amen.